here uh, at the front end of this message before we get into these first four verses. Um, there are a lot of Jameses in the New Testament, four of them. Um, two of them were disciples of Jesus. And this James was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. He had at least four brothers. Two of them wrote epistles, James and Jude. James was not a believer during the entire earthly ministry of Christ until after the resurrection. And we're told that um, Jesus, during his 40 days on, on earth after his resurrection, made a special appearance to James. Um, we don't know if there were others, but James is highlighted and must have been during that time that James became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was not un until then. He was an unbeliever. In fact, he was opposed to Jesus, thought that he was out of his mind, um, and he was certainly not in the Jesus fan club. Um, his name is actually not James. We've Englishized it. His name is literally Jacob. Um, and so the Jacob um, and got transferred a little bit into the Greek and then a little bit more changed into the Latin. And finally it came out as James for us. But his real name that Jesus would have called him would have been Jacob. He had two nicknames, James the Just and Camel Knees. Um, James the Just because even his enemies recognized that he was an extraordinarily good, devout, and just man. And camel knees because he spent so much time on his knees praying that um, you could see the, the calluses on his knees. They were big, broad, hard knees like on a camel because of all the time he spent in prayer. On his righteousness or justness, his goodness, even Josephus makes recognition of James and says that Josephus himself believed that the Jerusalem and temple destruction were in part due to James being murdered. And that's coming from a man who considered himself a Pharisee. But he recognized the, the, the great integrity and godliness of James. James would have been killed in 62 AD, according to Josephus, and he wrote this epistle somewhere between, we think, 45 and 50 AD. The reason that's significant is it makes this the oldest book in the New Testament. So there were no gospels that had been written, no epistles that had been written when James was written. Oldest book in the New Testament. The legend told of how he came about to be martyred was that um, he was already recognized as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, of all the Christians in Jerusalem, James was the top figure. Um, again, highly respected, but there was no doubt that of the elders of the Jerusalem church, James was recognized as the, as the most prominent of those elders. In the council that took place in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where they were having to debate and determine what should they require of, of new Gentile Christians, it was Peter who spoke first, and it was James who nailed it down and said, this is what we're going to require and nothing more. And his word was settled the whole thing. So he was a man of great influence um, and... and um, power in the church. And so he was uh, marked for execution by his enemies. 
And so we're told that a man named um, Ananus um, um, arrested him and told him that he would be put to death unless he renounced Christ from the wall of the city near the temple. And so he agreed, according to the legend. And he got up on the wall, and there was a massive crowd of people down below waiting to see what he would say. And he did not renounce Christ, he preached Christ. And he gave the gospel, and Ananus was so upset that he pushed him off the wall, 120 feet. And just to make sure he was dead, the people that were down below stoned him. And so that's how he met his end. This little book has 54 imperatives or commands in it. That's more than any epistle in the New Testament. Um, there's one for almost every two verses. He is constantly saying, this is what you're supposed to do. So it's a very practical book. Martin Luther hated this book. There were two books that he did not want in the New Testament, James and Revelation. James, because he did not see any way that James could be reconciled with Paul. In fact, Martin Luther said that if you could reconcile James and Paul, that he would give you the beret that he was awarded when he got his doctorate degree. Well, it's not that difficult to, I don't, and I'm not better, smarter than Martin Luther, but Martin Luther was an interesting character. Um, we can say a lot about Martin Luther. He was the Donald Trump of theology back in his day. There are a lot of parallels, seriously. He also hated Revelation because it gave a future to Israel. And he was very anti-Semitic. So there was, he was an interesting and complex individual. So don't take it too seriously when Martin Luther says James should be out of your Bible. He was wrong. James is writing, it says, to the Jews, the 12 tribes that have been dispersed. So he's writing to Jewish people outside of Israel who are suffering persecution. This book has a lot in common with Matthew. It's been observed, but you remember Matthew had not been written yet. So how can it have so much in common with Matthew? Well, it's not because he was a believer in Jesus but you can't help but grow up with Jesus and not hear probably some of these things over and over again. And we do know that Matthew, I'm sorry, yeah, James and his brothers on occasion were standing around when Jesus was giving his sermons. Not because they liked it, but because they thought he was nuts and they wanted to get him off the public speaking tour and bring him back home. And so James would have heard many of the things that Jesus said. Here's some of the parallels, and this is not unique to me. There's several commentaries point these out. James says, as we'll see here in this, first, in this second verse, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for the same, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James says, let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus says, therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
James says, but if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Jesus says in Matthew, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened. James says, prove yourselves to be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be a foolish man, like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. James says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. James says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And you get the idea. I won't go through the rest of them, but there are a number like that. And you go, a lot of parallels between Jesus, what he said in Matthew, and James. Now, I can't prove this, but I kind of think that because they grew up in the same household and Jesus would have learned to talk from Joseph and Mary, and like children in every family, you typically have the same vocabulary, the same cadence, the same style, even in how you talk, don't you? So it doesn't surprise me that James reads, even in the way that it's written, I mean, you can, you can almost hear Jesus talking because it sounds like one of Jesus' sermons. It's so similar. And I think we should expect that because they grew up in the same household and they learned to speak from the same two people. The purpose of this book is clearly to encourage Jewish believers who are living outside of Israel and were suffering persecution, to encourage them to allow their trials to perfect their faith and bring them to maturity. So the whole book is really about faith maturing, faith being perfected. And the word for perfect and maturity are, are basically the same. Spiritual immaturity was James' concern. His, his epistle can be considered to be about the marks of maturity for the Christian life. Warren Wiersbe says, I am convinced that spiritual immaturity is the number one problem in our churches. And this is what James is dealing with in wanting to move these persecuted Jewish believers toward maturity. He deals with every area of the Christian life. What the Christian is, what he does, what he says, what he feels, and even what he possesses. So the theme would be the perfection of faith. Hard to outline this book. A lot of the commentaries will just outline it chapter by chapter. But there's so many different topics in this book. It's been called the Proverbs of, New, of the New Testament. And just as it's hard to outline Proverbs, hard to outline this book as well. Okay. Starts out, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. He could have called himself the half-brother of Jesus. It's easy to name drop, isn't it? Kind of just 
kind of give your credentials, you know, and, and that wasn't James. I mean, we'd all be inclined to do that. I'm because there are lots of Jameses out there. I'm the James that grew up with him. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He says, "Bond servant." That's a nobody. In the Greek world, you did not want to be a servant. Servants had no right. Servants could be killed, and you could not charge the owner with murder. But Moses is called the servant of God, so you're in pretty good company. When God calls you one of his servants. James equates the deity of God with the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. A bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said, he's writing to the 12 tribes. So there aren't 10 lost tribes. You remember when we look through the kings, after Israel to the north was taken into captivity by the Assyrians... Those ten tribes to the north have been known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Well, there's no such thing as God has not lost ten tribes. God knows exactly where his, all twelve tribes are. In the book of Revelation, he's going to mark out um, for salvation 12,000 from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. These, these tribes have never been lost. And so James knows that, and so he speaks, and he says, I'm addressing all of Israel who scattered outside the land. And then he says, greetings. I didn't know this till reading what Arnold Frutenbaum has to say about this book, but he says, even the word greetings, he puts with an imperative sense. I mean, this is a guy all about telling you what you need to do. <laughs> so even when he says hello, it sounds like a command. <laughs> and so this is just James. Consider it, and that's the imperative, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now I hear my mother when I read that. And, you know, we all, you know, I, I grew up thinking I was the only person who had a bad junior high experience. But I know now junior high was difficult for everybody. We should outlaw it. We, you know, why don't we vote on that? Let's just outlaw junior high. All the junior high kids, amen. Let's just skip those three years. Just lock up the kids for three years and bring them out when they're high school age. And I suffered, you know, I know now I didn't suffer more than any other kid, but at the time I felt like that I was Job, Job Jr. And um, I had physical problems other than being short. That's, I think, hobbit-itis, and I, ha I, never got, I never got over that one. I had eczema that was just awful. All over my arms, my legs, um, heat aggravated it. Well, it's hot in Corpus Christi. And so my eczema was aggravated all the time. And it, it looked like leprosy. Um, bad. And, and then being picked on in school. And so I, you know, I, I, I was an angry, depressed child. And my mother would always say, count it all joy. You need to give thanks, God. You need to thank God for what you're going through. Well, I thought that was the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. Why would you thank God? God is the problem here. Just thanking God brings it to the focus that God did it, right? 
Because otherwise, you know, if you just don't, if you don't thank God, well, then you can kind of just keep God out of the picture, right? And you can say, well, it's those kids at school, or it's just bad genetics. But when you thank God for what you're going through, now you brought him into the, into the suffering. And you have to acknowledge that God could alleviate this if he chose to alleviate it. So now you've got to deal with God. Whereas before, you could just kind of keep him on the fringes. Didn't seem very smart to thank God. But this is a command. It is not a suggestion. Consider it all joy. You know, we've all heard, we, we love the optimist. And, you know, you ask somebody how they're doing, and they go, living the life. And I think, wish I could say that. It's kind of fun to hear it. There was a guy here in the church, I used to ask him how he was doing, and occasionally he'd say, if I was doing any better, I'd be twins. <laughs> That's great. But this is, this is not faking it. This is acknowledging the trial and turning to God in it. This is trusting him thanking Him, yielding to Him, and His purposes. It's pursuing Him, not escape. It occurs to me that a persecuted people have truly lots of various trials. Because that's what he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Think about the various trials that persecuted people would be going through. Financial trials. Food trials. Where am I going to get my food? Housing trials. Where am I going to sleep tonight? Relational trials. Who's going to befriend me and who is going to attack me? Persecuted people have probably every kind of trial that they have to deal with, except two, the trial of praise and the trial of prosperity. But those are trials. Proverbs says that a man is tested by the praise that comes to him. And praise is a trial. Are we going to turn to the Lord in that as well? Or just take it as we, we deserve it? Prosperity is a trial. Will we forget God? Will our hearts grow cold when we live in prosperous times? So a persecuted people face lots of different kinds of trials, but they don't face them all. Nobody does. There are trials at both ends of the spectrum. Incredible hardship or incredible blessing. There is still trial. Read the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches in Ephesus. And three of them, Jesus speaks to about their perseverance. The first one being Ephesus. And he has the most to say about their endurance and their perseverance to the church in Ephesus. But he also says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. So even though that church was enduring, their love had grown cold. They'd left their first love. It says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. To encounter trials 
is not to seek them out. It is not spiritual health to say, well, if trials are good, then God bring them on. They will seek you out. You never have to pray for trials. When you encounter trials, they're coming for you. <laughs> we will not be without trials. They are coming. You will encounter them. You do not have to seek them out. They seek you out. When means it's going to happen. There will not be a time in our life where we're not going through some kind of trial. Many times they will be tremendous, great trials that are, uh, just make us undone. But we always are going to have trials. Counting them joy is a common theme in the New Testament. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Ephesians 5.18, in everything give thanks. Ephesians 5.20, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, I'm sorry, in everything give thanks. And Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks for all things. So this is not unique to James, counting it all joy. It's everywhere in the New Testament. There is simply no place for complaining and whining in the Christian life. Now, I think as we mature, and I only get this from looking at mature people, not from my own experience, but I think as folks mature in the Lord, the time frame between trial and counting it joy shortens. I count it joy now, what I went through in junior high, <laughs> but that was a long time ago. But this, when the, that time frame is shortened, that's maturity. I remember a pastor telling me one time that he was, um, he was out chopping down trees in a man's yard. And big, tall, you know, 40, 50 foot tall pine trees. And they cut down a tree. The house, the man's house was nearby. And they had done everything just right so that the tree would fall off to the side of the house. But as the tree came down, it turned. And it went right across this man's house. Massive tree. House is going to be blown to smithereens. And the owner of the house, everybody's just standing there. You can't even say anything. You're just frozen in time. And this man, pastor, hears the owner of the house saying, it's just a house. That's counting it joy in the moment. And that tree came right across the ridgeline of the house. Whole ridgeline flexed. Tree bounced up, moved over, and dropped next to the house. Didn't do any damage whatsoever to that house. Isn't that amazing? I like that story that I've told you before about Ian Thomas after World War II. And he's driving through Austria and Germany on the Autobahns, and he was just... Never. He was, that was one place he was at home because he didn't like speed limits. And he was just flying through the mountains of Austria. And um, his brakes went out. He's got two men in the car with him. And he's just pumping the floor. Nothing's happening. And the two men dove for the floorboard. And Major is just trying to stay on the, on the highway. And he's laughing hysterically. And the two men in the floorboard are going... We're really in trouble. No brakes and a crazy man at the wheel. 
But Major's laughing. He's counting it all joy because he's going, either something miraculous is about to happen or we're about to meet Jesus. <laughs> and what can be wrong with either option? <laughs> and the car came to a stop. And they get out. Two men in the floorboard on wobbly legs. There's a little farmhouse there. And Major comes out of the car and puts his hands on his hips. And he looks around. And he goes, God, we're here for a reason. You had us stop at this place. We would have never been here if the brakes hadn't fallen, got failed on us. Why are we here? And he sees a little boy feeding the chickens. And he says, it must be for him. And he went over there and knelt down in that chicken coop with that boy and prayed with him to receive Christ. He later became one of the leaders and torchbearers. And he said at the time that he could hear his bones rattle when he walked because they were so poor after the war. And he was so skinny. How can we consider it all joy? This world is not all there is. We know that. We have a hope. The world doesn't. We know that God uses trials to bring us to maturity. If this world was all there was, I wouldn't care about the maturity, frankly. I just want this time now to be as easy as possible because this is all there is. But because this is not all there is, I would rather enter glory mature than immature. Now, I don't know all that goes into that, and I've speculated on this before, and so it's just take it for what it is, speculation. But there, we know that things like endurance cannot be produced in the next life because there will be nothing to endure. Right? You will never have to forgive anybody in the next life, praise God. You'll never have to say you were wrong. Forgive me in the next life. Praise the Lord. Oh, my word. It's going to be so great. But there will be no patience to learn because there will be nothing, no one you'll have to be patient with. Nothing to forgive. Nothing to be long-suffering. No forbearance. I mean, virtually everything we count as a virtue today can only be learned in the face of hardship. Now, I know that when we see him, we will be like him. I get it. I know that he will complete the work that he has begun in each one of us. Amen. Hallelujah. But there is some sense in which what God is after in each of us can only be accomplished now. Now. This is the time to learn endurance. This is the time to learn to forgive. This is the time to learn to love unconditionally. There will not be these lessons, these opportunities, when everything is perfect. It's only now. And this is what he is after. So this is why it meant so much to me, and I've, I've made reference to this in our recent staff meeting as well as with the students. When my older brother passed away at 25 with leukemia, 
recently married. It was a very, very difficult time. I was only 20. And I knew that there were only two options. Turn away from the Lord or turn toward the Lord. And I knew that to turn away from the Lord is death. And why should I compound death with death? That just seemed foolishness. But it was really hard to consider it all joy. But someone, I think providentially, put in our hands as a family a little book called Don't Waste Your Sorrows by a guy named Bill Heimer. And he argues what I just summarized. This is the only time, this time, this world, this fallen world is the only time for God to work in us much of what he's after. That's why the title of the book, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. Let God achieve what God is after. And right now, he is after endurance, which produces maturity. You can't be mature without endurance. And you can't learn endurance without trials. And the best we can tell, there are not going to be any trials after this world, after this life. We know that trials bring about compassion in us, and they truly do. You're much less likely to be hard and severe on others when you have been through hard times yourself. One of my brothers in college used to, when they went to college in South Carolina, and there was a neighborhood where men just stood out on the street corner all day long probably doing drugs and selling drugs. It was a bad neighborhood. But my brothers, they drove by. If he was in the passenger seat, he would lean out the passenger door and say, get a job! <laughs> Years later, he was without a job. And the Lord brought back what he used to shout at people, get a job. And he was convicted. And he said, I'll never shout at anybody again get a job, because I know what it's like to not have one. Suffering and trial bring about compassion and mercy in us. That's a good thing. They humble us. They also wean us from this world. I think Oswald Chambers is very insightful on this when he says, never ask what God is trying to teach you in a trial. Says God's goal is not the end. God's goal is the process. It's not what he's trying to teach you through this. It's what he's trying to do in you in it. That's very insightful. That's what James is saying. Count it all joy. Why? Because God is working in you to produce endurance. And from that endurance, maturity. And we spend so much time because I think, man, it's like school. Learn the lesson and move on to the next thing, right? That lesson's done, learn, move on. But that, God's not trying to teach us lessons. He's trying to bring us into conformity to Christ. And so the, the, the goal of God is the process. What are you wanting to accomplish in me? And the answer to that is always Christ-likeness, humility, conformity to Jesus. There are four basic assumptions with this statement, considered all joy when you, when you encounter various trials. 
The first is simply trials are a part of life. Trials will not all be taken away through prayer, is the second assumption. Sometimes God removes the trials when we ask Him. Many times He does not. The third assumption is it is possible to rejoice in all kinds of trials. And the fourth assumption, they will result in endurance and maturity if we turn to God joyfully in them. Will happen. Then he says in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now this is something that Paul and James do have in common. In, John, in James, sorry, Romans chapter 6, Paul says, knowing this, knowing this, and then he, says, then he says, reckon on this. Reckon, what you know, reckon or consider to be true. And so this starts out considering it all joy. Why? Because knowing, knowing that testing of your faith produces endurance. We know this is God's intention. He doesn't allow trials to come into our life in order to, to ruin us. But He allows trials to come into our life to build us, to conform us. He is not about destroying us. He is not against us. He is for us. We know this. We know that this is the only way for endurance to be produced. Through trial. My had a, a, a friend, friend of the families, when I was going through those hard junior high years. And he was a professional weightlifter. M amazing fellow. Had already won Mr. Texas in both physique and in lifting. No man had ever done that. I don't know if anybody's accomplished it since, but he was the, the first guy to ever get both titles. Usually they either look good or they're really strong, but it's not both. He was both. Remarkable guy. And so he told me, looking at me and my 13-year-old, you know, Pee Wee Herman body, and, and he says, I used to be just like you. And I'm just going, that's not possible. And he said, this is what you need to do. And so he got me into lifting weights and doing push-ups and all kinds of things. And, and, but one of the things that he taught me and my brothers and some other, a couple other boys in the neighborhood was that it's supposed to hurt. And so when you lift weights, you are tearing the muscles. And then you need to give it a day, let the soreness kind of get out. But what's happening is you're not getting over the soreness as the muscles are healing. And then the next day, you tear them again. And as you do that, you're building capacity. You're, you're building your muscles. And he says, this is the way the body works. It's no different spiritually. We have to go through trial. There is no other way to grow. So if you are tired of being a mess, who isn't? If you're tired of being blamed for being imperfect, I get that a lot. You have to grow. And it's not just God make me perfect. That would be nice. Shortcut. Perfection. God says, I'm after the same thing. I don't like you being imperfect either. I don't like you being immature. You whine way too much. Let's do something about it. And God says, let's bring some trials into your life. There's no other way to grow in Christ than to have these trials and to consider them joy.
Those two things have to go hand in hand. But even unbelievers, look around us. We all know unbelievers that have character. And I, you can just take it to the bank. Where you see character, there is a person who has gone through trial. Because even in the world, it's the same formula. You can't grow. You can't mature. You can't develop character without being stretched and pushed and challenged. I have a book in my office written by a doctor talking about um, homosexuality and, and the politi politi politicalization of it. And uh, it's an amazing book. But one of the things this author, this doctor, he says he was dealing with AIDS before it had even been diagnosed. Nobody knew what they were dealing with. And he was dealing with homosexual men in the streets of New York. And it was a little while later that they discovered that what they were dealing with was now we call AIDS. And this is a very understanding compassionate man. And he says that some of the finest individuals he's ever met in his life are men with same-sex attraction who are choosing every day not to act on it. You build character like that. It's a trial. It's a daily trial, a daily battle. And they are saying, I will not go down that path. That takes character, takes strength. And I can't imagine having to choose every day against something that feels so basic to you. And yet many people do. And God is not necessarily taking away that same sex attraction. But in the case of those who know the Lord, He is building saints. He is making people who are extraordinary in their faith in Christ. We know these things. The question is, are we reckoning them to be true? Do we consider it to be joy? If you notice, we really aren't told to endure. We're told to consider it or reckon it joy. That's the issue. Will I consider it, reckon it to be joy? Knowing that the testing of your faith, it's not called God's faith, it's your faith, sustained faith in great trial is supernatural. We all want Jesus to be seen in us. How can that happen apart from trial? So when, we're, when we pray, Jesus, I want you to be seen, then God says, and let's bring you into circumstances that you cannot handle in your own strength. So that the supernatural grace of God is seen. And there is no explanation for what's happening in your life other than Jesus is doing it. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The perfect result is perfection or maturity. Positionally, we are already perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I could find you scripture verses that speak to all three of those things. Perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Positionally, that's already true. Experientially, not so much. 
We have not arrived, and we are still moving from glory to glory. Let. Trials will produce endurance if we let them. We don't produce perfection, maturity, endurance. God does through testing. This principle is true even for unbelievers. It is vitally important throughout this book, as we go through this book, it is vitally important to remember that this book, James is addressing practical issues of faith, not positional issues. Positionally, you are perfect, you are complete, you lack in nothing. Experientially, we're growing. And James talking about the experiential aspects of faith. So it's extremely practical. And, um, and the whole theme seems to be what he states in these opening verses. Consider it all joy. Major Thomas used to say, and I'll finish it up with this, the language of faith is thanksgiving. The language of Israel was murmuring. Perhaps nothing can be more in contrast to murmuring Israel than a joyful, thankful church. They murmured when they were going through their trials. We're distinct. And we say, Lord, it feels like too much. I can't take it. I need you to stop, to relieve it. It's fine to pray that way. But we also pray... Thy will be done. Thy will be done. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for the grace that I don't even feel that I'm experiencing. But nonetheless, in faith, thank you. And we consider it joy. I'll pray. Lord, we do pray that in this matter of considering it all joy when we encounter various trials, that your will, not ours, would be done. By nature, we are complaining, whining, murmuring, ungrateful people. But Christ is in us, and he is none of those things. And so we need your supernatural work in us, God, that in the midst of the trials, that we will consider it joy. And thank you, God. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you will use us for good. Thank you that your intentions for us are always good. And that nothing can ever separate us from your love for us. And I thank you, God, for the many, many ways I see your grace around me in the lives of so many, including in this church, who in the midst of their trials turn to you humbly, with brokenness, desperate, but also with faith. And I'm so grateful. I pray that you would sustain and bless each of us, God, with your sustaining grace as we turn to you. In Christ's name, amen.